And the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is not yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not be it. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteousness will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like soul, and he is like never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Okay, this is the beginning of God responding to Habakkuk. Now he's going to have a lot to say to Habakkuk, but this is the start. He says, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. So God wants Habakkuk to write the vision down, I think because it's not going to just be for Habakkuk, but other people's information as well. So he has him write it down. He says the vision is for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. It may look like it's being delayed, but it's really not. So God's saying, I've got an answer. I want you to write it down so other people can read it and run. It's, it's, it, the timing's perfect. It looks like it's delaying, but it's really not. From the Lord's perspective, everything's always right on schedule. We don't see the Lord's timetable. And so basically the Lord's answer here is, the proud one writes his own obituary. You know, his soul is not right within him. You know, the proud man is going to be punished by God, but the righteous will live by his faith. Basically, what Habakkuk has to do is trust God. That's how the righteous man lives. Relies on God for everything, regardless of how things look. A righteous man ultimately has to let God run the universe. We have to trust Him. Does God always tell us every detail of why He does what He does? No. Nor would we think God would be obligated to do that. I doubt if we could understand it if He tried. But He is God. And ultimately, our relationship with Him is based on trust. Not based on us understanding every detail of what he does. That is such a key principle. That passage is quoted in three significant New Testament contexts. In Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. You know, because that's really the principle of God's relationship with man. We have to trust him. Now, God's going to explain a lot more stuff to Habakkuk. This is not all of Habakkuk. But it's where God starts. You write this down, Habakkuk. The proud man's wrong. The righteous man trusts me. Now he says in verse 5, Wine betrays the haughty man so that he's not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He's like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations, collects himself all peoples. He says, you know, here's what the proud, wicked man does. You know, he's arrogant. He's brash. He victimizes others. And that will lead him into the next section where God will explain what he's going to do toward that haughty man. Don't be the haughty man. Be the humble, trusting man. 
But that's how you have to deal with some of these questions. Ultimately, God says, you've got to trust me. Comments and questions? going to show it all to you and you'll have all your questions solved. That's not the way it goes. It will still come down to a matter of faith and trust. No matter how much you grow and how much you're getting. I think that's a good lesson for us. I mean, God doesn't see the need to tell us everything we want to know. He tells us enough to help us trust Him, but He doesn't give us all the answers. 
<laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It wouldn't be fair. Other thoughts? We, we just got to remember that we can't halfway trust God. We can't just rely on Him for some things and then think that we're control and rule over some other other things in our lives. But we got to remember that God rules all and that He is our Creator and He spoke us into existence and that we are just in complete submission to Him and that He guides us in every way and that we just we aren't in control and that He is. Absolutely not. And when it's all said and done, I mean, you know, who are we to think that God has to tell us everything that he's doing and he has to justify himself to us? Carissa? You might have made this point too much or enough or whatever. It's just an observation that came up in my mind. It's kind of like, we're kind of like second graders versus a Harvard professor. That's exactly right. And so when a Harvard professor is trying to teach second graders two plus two, or actually second graders should already know that, but still, when they teach you on something simple to a Harvard professor and even to us, and the second grader, you know, is not wise to question the Harvard professor as to his technique. Well, if you're raising small children, do you explain everything behind your actions to them? Why did you tell Sometimes they wouldn't understand it. I, I, I don't think you never give an explanation, but you can explain something. You know, could you explain to a first grader, you know, all the theory behind why things in math work? Probably not. They probably wouldn't have the ability to understand it. You start by saying, hey, you need to trust me. Here's how you do it. You know? I mean, can you imagine a kid being unwilling to drive until they understand every detail of an engine? You know? You say, well, you turn the wheel this way and the car goes this way. No, I won't do that until I can figure out exactly how that works. Well, trust me, that's the way it works. You know, so that is very much the way it is with God. He doesn't owe us an explanation for everything. We have the right to ask. He has the right to say, trust me. And he does on a lot of things. And so I think that's very important for us. Not to wait to trust God because we see it all. If we saw it all and understood it all and had all our questions answered, well, Larry says is right. It really wouldn't be trust anymore. He's given us evidence. We have every reason to trust him. But he hasn't given us the answer to everything. I really think this is a helpful principle, John. It makes me think of the song we sometimes sing. Uh, Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long while there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother, live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. I'm not sure exactly what he means, Donner means by that, but you could read into that. God's going to finally tell us the answer to all of our questions, and we can, can take comfort in that. If that's what our view is, that's probably not right. Yeah, I agree. I, I would interpret that, if we're going to sing it properly, that in the very end... We'll understand it in the least in the, at least in the sense that when we're with the Lord, 
that'll kind of solve the issues. I don't know even then if we're going to get a, an explanation of everything that happened, but I don't think it'll bother us anymore at that point. Yeah. Sometimes I think the understanding comes in the just peacefulness of knowing you don't have to understand that. Certainly, that's <laughs> true. Isn't it a great thing that we don't have to run the universe? That we don't have to know everything that God is doing? I mean, really, we know what God wants from us. We know how to, you know, what he says. That's that's a big help, Cameron. If God did explain everything to us, then there'd be no hope with us having any faith in him because we understand it all and there'd be not trusting him that it's true. And then we, God wants us to have faith in him and it pleases him. And so he can't tell us everything. Explain it all else. He can't be pleasing us having faith in him. And it is a matter of us trusting God. You know, sometimes God's going to tell us things that we don't know why he said that. We don't know why he wants that. You know, do you want a child? If you were raising a little kid, would you want him only to obey you if he understands why? What happens if the kid's about to run out in the path of a truck and you say, stop right there? Do you want the kid to think, well, you didn't tell me why? And why not? You know, it's a good reason for parents to teach their children, you obey me. When I say something, you can ask me questions later. I might answer them. But when I tell you, you do what I say. That's exactly what we have to do with God. Sometimes we will understand later. Sometimes there's even things in the Bible that once we understand them better, we'll understand more, more background, more, we'll have more insight. But we don't say, well, I won't do it, God, until you explain yourself to me. We still do what's right. That's a good thing about Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks a lot of questions, but I don't take it that Habakkuk's rebelling against God and just doing it his own way and saying, God, I'll start obeying you once you start answering my questions. He's obeying God the whole way. You know, that's what we've got to do. And we won't always know the reason why. You know, you can see a lot of value in God putting books like this in the Bible. It forces us to kind of think through some things that are very practical things for us in our lives. Other thoughts? All right, good discussion. Why don't we take a break for uh, ten minutes or so, rest yourself, and then we'll come back and work on the messages. Since we don't have a whole lot of um, permission to uh, speak in tongues without an interpreter, I uh, we should uh, revert to our uh, rudimentary knowledge of English and uh, see what we can do here. Good discussion. I really do appreciate you guys paying such good attention and being so eager for this. And some really good comments. Um, Habakkuk is an interesting book, so different from some of the others uh, that I think is really helpful to us. Um, We've got here now more of the answer God's giving to Habakkuk. I mean, the first thing he says essentially is you've got to trust me, but that's not the end of the story. He's got some more things to say. And I think these things are, are pretty uh, helpful as well. Um, some of uh, these things, you have to stop and think about what they're saying in the context. That may be the biggest challenge for us. I think trying to understand this part in itself is not that hard. I think we'll go ahead and read all of this, and uh, because it's all kind of parallel. 
See if you can kind of sort out what's being said and kind of see the different points that are being made. Would somebody read chapter 2, verse 6 down to 19? Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with blows? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the people will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land and to the town, and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house, by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, and tells a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire, and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters are covered with the sea. Woe to him who makes your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come uh, upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts, by which you've terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork, when he fashions speechless idols. What a hymn says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise, and that, and that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. Okay, what do you see <laughs> happening here? What, what, how, would you, uh, how would you organize this passage? By woes. How many woes do we have? Count. No. Five. Five. There are five woes. Um, and the woes are to him, in one case to you. But but woes on the person that does certain things. Now, these woes are expressed by whom? Who's saying the woe to him? God. Now, if God says woe to him, what do you suppose that means? He's wrong and punishment's coming. Punishment's coming. I think that's exactly the point. God goes back and reiterate some of the principles upon which he operates the universe. Now, that was really what's been in question in the book so far. You know, does God um, ultimately demand justice and righteousness? Does God punish wickedness? Now, the first question was, does God punish wickedness in Judah? We got the answer to that, right? 
He does by by sending wickeder nation Babylon. I think this section is more toward helping us understand the general principles that we could apply to what God's going to do with Babylon. What God? What does God do with wicked people and nations? <coughs> he punishes them. Not always in our timetable. We've seen that back in verse 3. But he does punish them. Just look at some of the details of this. In verses 6 through 8, who does he punish? When he makes himself rich. Why? Increasing what is not his. Yes. Here is one who exploits others craftily, unscrupulously. And what ends up happening to this one who's uh, unjustly increased his gain? The tables are turned and he becomes the exploited. You know, he becomes the one looted because, he says in the end of verse 8, and this is a refrain he'll use again, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. So, a person or a nation that exploits others for its own gain will be punished. That's true in general. Who would that particularly apply to here? Babylon. Isn't that basically what he said about Babylon back in chapter 1? That they devour whatever they want without regard to justice and righteousness? So this is a general principle. This is how God operates the universe, but it applies to Babylon. Look at the one in 9 through 11. What does God give a woe to, or who does God give a woe against? Yeah, somebody who's greedy to do what? What's his goal? Gain for his house. Gain for his house, and not just gain for his house, but evil gain and what's he trying? What's he seeking? To be delivered. To be delivered. Seeking security. You know, using evil gain to put himself on high where he's protected and away from the possibility of destruction. Well, what happens to this person who seeks security in evil gain? Yeah, that's exactly right. It doesn't work, does it? You're sinning against yourself and eventually the house itself will turn against you. The empire you build on unjust gain will collapse. Does it collapse the very day you first start gaining unjustly? Not necessarily. But it collapses. And that will happen to Babylon. Just like to any other person or nation that engages in unjust gain. God is reiterating that he operates the universe on principles of justice. God's justice will prevail. When you see a a, a wicked nation, maybe even conquering nations more righteous than they are, don't think that means that injustice will get by with it. That goes back to the question about Hitler. What happened to Hitler? 
It wasn't a pretty picture. Did it happen the moment he started doing wrong things? No. Did it happen quickly? Well, a dozen years or so. You know, it wasn't very quick for the oppressed, but it's pretty quick to consider the uh, several thousand year history of the world. You know, God does operate the universe on principles of justice and righteousness. That's the way this is going to be. Comments and thoughts through verse 11. Is there a dual meaning here for Judah as well, since some of the same things apply to that nation? I think there is, and really to any wicked nation, a wicked individual. He doesn't specify Babylon here, I think because this is not just for Babylon. If the shoe fits, wear it. It fits Babylon, but it's not just for Babylon. This is how God operates. You know, woe to whoever the him is. Who does these things? It's true for us as well. So I think Babylon is, in the context, maybe the first application that Judah was, and we are too, to the extent we engage in these practices. Other comments? What about the one in 12 to 14? Who's being condemned? Whoever uses violence to increase. Yes. Don't you see how these descriptions of the man that the world applies to are so parallel to what he said about Babylon? Those are very, very closely connected. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town of violence. You know, God's going to send them to the fire. You know, it's not going to work. The, the earth will ultimately glorify God. And when God punishes a nation like Babylon, or Judah, whoever, it, it shows the greatness and glory and righteousness of God. It exalts God. So God has woes against the one who exploits, the greedy man, the self-exalting man. Look at 15 to 17. The woes against who? <laughs> Not exactly the drunk. The immoral. Sort of the immoral. Causes someone else to stumble. Causes someone else to... Not exactly. <laughs> Deceitful. Deceitful to be oppressed, Ken. Those that are drunk on power, maybe. Yes. Look at what he says. What are you who make your neighbors drink? Who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. Do you see what they were doing? They were trying to um, you know, manipulate other people for their own gain. They were trying to strip away the honor of others to be able to enjoy that, to enjoy their you know, impure state, to look on their nakedness, to, to take advantage of them. When you try to get somebody else to do wrong so you can take advantage of them. I think that's the idea. We will do that sometimes. And in this case, who will end up getting disgraced? The person who did. Absolutely. You are going to be the ones who will receive what you're trying to dish out. You yourself will drink and expose your nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. Remember that cup idea? What cup is that? A cup 
The cup of God's wrath. It's here in Habakkuk 2. It's all over the place. You know, they are going to receive the wickedness that they've done. The cup idea is especially appropriate in this particular passage. Talking about drinking. <laughs> you know, they give the cup of you know liquor to others, wine. They're going to get back a cup of the wrath of God. Um, would that apply to the cup when Christ talks about what this cup has for me? I think so. I think he means the cup of God's wrath that he dropped in our place. He drank in our place. My conjugated verb for me now. And notice he ends this section in the end of 17 the same way he ended verse 8. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. So that kind of ties this together. And then in 18 and 19, the woe applies to who? The idol worshiper. How dumb is that anyway? What does he have the guy who worships, worships idols doing? Telling what to awake. Yeah. That's really smart, isn't it? And a stone to get up. And that's your teacher? Think about the things that we worship, that we honor, that we trust in. Sometimes they don't amount to any more than trying to tell a block of wood to get up. Even if you overlay it with gold and silver, there's one problem the idol has. And what's the problem? It's dead. Put all the gold and silver on it you want, it's still inanimate. There's no life in it. And so, nothing with, without life should be the object of our worship. Should be the priority in our life. Think about that. And what do you prioritize? What is number one in your life? Does it even have breath? You know? Think about the kinds of things that people just live for. Most of them don't even breathe. You know, what about a car? Doesn't even have life. You know, and 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 you can think about so many. What about <laughs> what about a video game? You know, or what? So many of the things that we dedicate ourselves most to, they're dead. How foolish it is to bow down to that. The Babylonians, of course, were idolaters. They were worshiping their net. It had no life in it. So, the series of woes, God will judge and punish wicked people, and exhibit A would probably be Babylon in this context. Comments and questions? Verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You probably sung that uh, verse, thought, thought about that verse. Think about it a little bit in this context. For one thing, look at it in contrast with verses 18 and 19. You know, if you do all this stuff to your image, you shout to it to awake or to arise, but it's nothing. 
but before the true God, the creator, the ruler of the universe, what must you do? Be silent. Be silent. Ultimately, God is on his throne. His will prevails. I think Habakkuk has been silenced by what God has said. Once you really think about who God is and what he says, what can you say? You know, what, what, what can you argue back? If God is ruling on his throne, we stand in silence and awe. He is the great God. It's really not the passage to say be quiet when you go to the church building. But it is a passage to say be absolutely submissive and reverent before God in every way. He is in his holy temple. You may not understand a lot, but silently respect him. There is no one who will withstand him. Comments and questions? Sure. I think in some ways we can't help but be silent. You know, it's not just we have to be silent. It's kind of like, you know, the fact that you know, every knee shall bow to me. It's not us doing the action. It's we. We are meant. We can't help it. <laughs> We need to see him properly, and then you're exactly right. Yeah, he's he's awe-inspiring. There's no words that do him justice. Other thoughts? I have a thought. Um, in the later part of verse 20, let all the earth be silent before him. In the greater context of what we've been talking about since the break, with the five blows, um, wouldn't this, what I think of this as meaning people quit doing your woes and quit sinning before God, be silence your evil ways or something like that, which um, I think we should do. Absolutely. Good point. Yes. We need to be silently submissive to God. You know, not passively rebellious. And going off of what Matthew said, I mean, looking at 6 through 20 in context of verses 4 and 5, these woes are not on people who live by faith, but on people who live by self-sufficiency, and who are haughty and try to gain for themselves, and try to manipulate others, whereas we live by faith, and we serve a God in which we have no right to question His decisions. We must be silent in His presence. Excellent. Other comments? Well, that would be an interesting conclusion to the book, but it is not. There is chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. And I have no idea what that means. That's evidently some kind of musical term or poetic term. I'm sure anybody really knows what that means. But here's his prayer. Now, 